This is the Pain Information Network, 101. Well, it's hard to believe we're over 100, but it feels good. It feels like we're getting some momentum. I'm going to get a little more sophisticated along the way, start talking a little more along the lines of both provider, patient, um, and even family. And so I'm going to kind of make this a Q&A today, some common questions that I've been asked and some forthright answers. And this is an information network and podcast. This is not to replace sound medical advice from a qualified provider. It's to be thought-provoking and give you something to, uh, you know, maybe write down and take to your next visit when you see your provider and say, this is what I heard, and give me your take on this. And maybe you get some uh, better advice there. I don't know, but <laughs> this is this is what my life has been about, is uh, treating pain and addiction. And I've done it a long time. So we take this through the whole rainbow from pharmacologic management to stabilization, psychological component, and comorbid disease, all the way over to interventional. And the previous podcasts have touched on most of those. What I haven't touched on is some of the foundational knowledge. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that today. I'm going to talk a little bit about addiction, a little bit about medications, and take it a little further, maybe even talk about uh, some um, personal experiences I've had in the clinic that I think are very relevant and important to bring up just so you've got something in your pocket, some some more uh, armamentarium for you to take, explore, uh, be careful when you Google be very careful, but um, just you know, get some get some interest in where you can be, where your friend can be, your loved one. Not now, but three, six, nine, and twelve months from now. Let's just get things better. So, if uh, you wouldn't mind going to paininformation.com, uh, if if you would like to leave me a question, I'll get to them. And uh, iTunes, if you could leave a, a review, that really helps us rank, and then we can. Yeah, you know, we can be found. It's a complicated algorithm. I don't know. I don't know how Apple does it, but you, we have quite a few listeners. We should be uh, at the top of the tree, but we are gaining momentum. So thanks. All right, I'm, I'm going to get to uh, some stuff, and I'm going to start off probably with the most controversial uh, question of the day. All right, so I get asked. Uh, I know a lot of people that misuse, abuse, or get addicted to drugs are fairly young. Uh, What do you do when you get pregnant? And how do you handle that? I'm addicted to opioids, and I'm pregnant, and I just found out, what do I do? Should I abruptly stop? Should I uh, keep it in hiding? Uh, I've, I've used IV drugs. I've snorted. Uh, but I prefer uh, pills, and I need help. I'm afraid. I'm hanging around with the wrong people. Let's break that down. Yeah, hanging around with the wrong people. You know, podcasters across uh, uh, iTunes in certain segments tend to emulate each other, and they say the the same things and reinforce, and, and they're very good. For example, you're really the average of the five people you hang around the most. That seems to be one of the things that you hear on these podcasts a lot. 
Well, I can tell you what, that is true, and no more so than the world of addiction. If you're hanging around bad people, you have triggers and you have cravings. Those triggers can be fast, and I mentioned before, in the case of cocaine, and you're looking at the brain through these uh, real sophisticated scanners, it, it can take a nanosecond, one-thirtieth of a second, one-three-thousandth of a second, very quick association, and the brain lights up, and you want some cocaine. Cocaine is highly addicted, and it's, it's a tragedy drug. Uh, it's rarely taken alone. People tend to go back and forth, and they love their benzodiazepines. Got to come off the crash, and then they love their opioids to feel a little better after the crash, get that euphoria back, and then they want uh, that dopamine rush from the uh, cocaine. Nothing is like a front row seat when you either snort, smoke, uh, inject, or whatever cocaine. It's just a huge dopamine surge in the nucleus accumbens and the other uh, central acting mechanisms uh, that give quite a bit of pleasure. So it's sad, and it's very real. Yesterday, I had a uh, patient come in who's been um, uh, on the buprenorphine program and has had a couple hiccups, and we don't get into people. It's not a moral failing. We help them work it through. Through motivational interviewing and other techniques, we try to get them back on track because, let's face it, we all screw up. We're human beings, but the addict is a vulnerable human being. You get around the wrong people, and unfortunately, off you go. You go right over the cliff, and that's what happened. So he was very sad because a young man that he grew up with um, and spent uh, some time in business with and was very close to died the day before. And he said it was cocaine, but it was probably a combination. That's usually the way it goes. So um, he was is very, very down, and that is a vulnerable place to be. Spent more time with him worked with him and i'm going to see him pretty regularly well he does have a good counseling foundation so he's going to get into that and he's going to stay away from those wrong people he's got to do that for me so there'll be a lot of urine drug screens there'll be a lot of uh, uh, discussions and they are all going to be in a direction towards best outcome because he was on track he was doing great he was he had a job he's staying away from ivy heroin uh he was working on his family, uh, both uh, extended and close, and he was making progress. Whoops, hiccup. That's a well-known problem in addiction, that uh, these hiccups happen. And that doesn't mean you're going to give up on them. Unfortunately, because it does happen, you're, you're staring down the barrel of what this disease is all about. It's a central nervous system problem, and it is a true disease, and it is a lifelong problem. So it's just like hypertension, diabetes, whatever. We don't have a cure for it yet. I, I think we're getting closer in the lab, but we're, we're a couple decades probably from getting an, a, a real way to deal with addiction because it's so, so many other biological mechanisms are interrelated. So here we have a young lady, and this has happened to me a number of times, whom, for whatever reason, um, ha has become pregnant. Now, we really want younger um, folks that are 
still able to have children uh, to be intimately involved with female health care and birth control or abstinence, which never works. And um, we really want to have the counselors address that on a regular basis and we'll get pregnancy tests or whatever it takes so that we don't get blindsided. But we do get blindsided. Primary care gets blindsided, um, non-specialty care, extenders, um, surgeons. I mean, a lot of surgeons are, are taking younger people to the operating room and as part of a routine, you know, I don't call it screening, I call it medically necessary uh, part of their care, they get a pregnancy test and, and kudos for them because I can tell you, being an anesthesiologist, uh, the more information we have about a patient, uh, the better it is. The overall experience is, is better. And some believe that uh, some of the drugs we give are teratogenic, and that means it can hurt the fetus. Well, some I believe, some I don't, but the evidence may be there, so I'm going to give everybody the benefit of the doubt and, and avoid what I can avoid. So, you know, in this world where we deal with addiction, that, that fetus has been exposed to some stuff. It may be straightforward. It may be really rugged on the fetus um, and the whole uh, vascular supply to the fetus, such as cocaine. And it may be uh, just something as straightforward as an opioid, like a Percocet or something, which is much less um, problematic. And it could be uh, the chaotic lifestyle of IV drug abuse, snorting, and that sort of thing, uh, expose the mother to HIV, hepatitis C, and everything like this. And, and so it's a complicated maze we go through. So you've got to have a good history, a good physical. You have to have a clear understanding uh, the patient's reliability. Do they tell you the truth or do they bend the truth? Do they tell you what you want to hear? Do they tell you what they think they hear? In other words, sometimes uh, patients tend to believe um, in the path of least resistance, and I think it therefore it is. In other words, they don't think things are bad. It'll be okay. I'm okay. Well, the developing fetus is a very different story. At different stages of development, uh, even, even just weeks, at different stages during the week, uh, it can make a lot of difference. And uh, so, I mean, that's what we do. We um, try to minimize risk. Not always easy to do, but we do our best. That's all we can do is we do our best. So, all right, so first do no harm. Let's start thinking how to first do no harm. We have an individual who is now pregnant, so we've really got two to worry about. And we've got a complicated problem called addiction. And we've got the individual who is living some kind of life, chaotic all the way to very discreet addict. Um, it's a, a big, large variation of personality to characteristics, traits, and reliable, uh, reliable uh, characteristics of treatment, in other words, compliance. So we got to look at that. And the best thing to do is a study. And these studies are going to be very difficult and challenging from an ethical standpoint, but also uh, they're going to have to be designed special ways uh, because you, you can't necessarily do a study in a pregnant person the way you would do it in, say, somebody you're studying an antihypertensive or a pain medicine where you can do a double-blind crossover study. You just can't really do that. You, you have to think 
that uh, you have a developing human being in there, and what are we going to do? So let's uh, let's look at some of the literature, and I'm just going to bring up the literature. I want to, the interested folks to either contact uh, paininformation.com with questions or their uh, provider. Uh, that's the best way to go. Um, their OBGYN, which will know these things, and... Uh, and talk it over ASAP if this dilemma pops up. I would hope that the OBGYN would uh, incorporate an addictionologist, if available, uh, to assist because um, this is this is an important time in an individual's life. What you do here can infe- can affect the uh, fetus um, for decades, and so let's uh, talk about it. Mother study. Yeah, that's an acronym. Uh, kind of clever. Uh, maternal opioid treatment, colon, human experimental research. Mother. <laughs> so they compared buprenorphine to the standard, which is methadone, that has been used for a number of years in the treatment of opioid use disorder in pregnant females. You, you think it doesn't happen much? It happens a lot. It, it's been... <laughs> utilized for this purpose past 40 years. So it's been around a lot, and we know a lot about methadone. Methadone is associated with neonatal abstinence syndrome. That means when the baby's born, it has methadone in him, him or her. And so they have a mini withdrawal, or they have a lot of withdrawal. And so they have to go into some type of uh, uh, associated uh, treatment where they come down slowly on the opioid because they don't like to eat, they cry a lot, they go through withdrawal. I mean, they're miserable. Um, So uh, it's not a short period of time because methadone, as you know, does not have a sense of humor that we are aware of, and it sticks around a long, long time. And so the mother is there in the hospital with the infant, and she's not coming home. And so friends and family are saying, where, where what's the problem it's not a jaundice baby baby is there something wrong with the baby or what's good and the idea of getting treatment is to keep it confidential that's really important to the addiction community but they're in the hospital 18 to 20 days as the baby is brought down slowly by utilizing morphine or some other treatment depending on where you live and so this study which is a really well-designed study, multiple locations, multiple sites, Um, they they looked at buprenorphine versus methadone. Is there a a better way to do this? And we know that buprenorphine is a uh, progressively favored child over methadone maintenance therapy, MMT. That takes an opioid-dependent woman uh, and helps her have a trouble-free pregnancy because we know, like I said, it reduces the risk of infectious disease, um, complications, spontaneous abortion, and miscarriages. You just don't stop somebody abruptly on opioids or wean them down quickly and let them go through withdrawal. If they're pregnant, they have an increased risk of losing the pregnancy. So, what are we going to do? The study is a beautiful design, and it takes uh, 
women, and they get syrup and tablets daily, uh, but they don't know what they're getting. It might be the syrup that's methadone, or it might be the tablets that's buprenorphine, but they're getting them both, so they don't know what they're getting. That's an ethical way at looking which one is working better. And they wanted to see which mother was potentially more successful if there's more complications. And what about uh, the infant when it's born? What, what do we know about getting them out of the hospital? You know, less time in the hospital is better for a number of reasons. Okay, so it incorporated design features so that this would be valid. And the, the most important thing was the staff that accumulated the information had to know what they were looking for. And you gotta you got to get rid of bias. And that was a, an important uh, finding in the exam, is, or not, uh, is both the exam and the history. But uh, the staff uh, needed to be very well educated on what's going on. So there's consistency because it's a multi-center uh, trial. So uh, there were uh, these uh, 175 women uh, who started and uh, 131 continued with the study. There was dropouts. There always is. But interestingly, during the open part of the study, three of them became pregnant again. So you could give them buprenorphine and then look at them against the opposite drug uh, in the same mother and see what the experiential uh, effect was with the infant. So they hypothesized that when you treat the mother with buprenorphine, the infant would come out with less neonatal abstinence syndrome. And guess what? That's correct. That's what happened. And so um, when you look at the uh, data, the total doses of morphine was much lower in those that had buprenorphine. The duration of the neonatal abstinence syndrome, or NAS, was much lower. They got out of the hospital faster. And that is, that's the deal. That's the deal. So building on the mother study, the next step is going to see what happens when it's not just opioids. It's other drugs involved. Because in reality, it's very, very hard uh, to find a drug seeker or drug dependent individual that just takes one drug, that being an opioid. So the next step is to look at those that have comorbid problems and co uh, co-administered uh, drugs, but they either have licitly or illicitly and most always illicitly. They love benzodiazepines uh, and that blunts the feeling of withdrawal and anxiety. And because we know about pain, addiction, and depression, they all neurobiologically are the same thing, so they seek to calm the brain, among other drugs. So that's going to be coming up, and I imagine someday there's going to be a study uh, that is in-depth that looks at uh, buprenorphine and naloxone combinations. Um, and we're going to probably, most likely, find out as what some of the consensus uh, discussions I've heard is the naloxone is in such small uh, uh, aliquots or, or, or such small levels in the infant, uh, it's not going to be a problem. So we can give the abuse deterrent buprenorphine to pregnant females and breathe a little easier. All right, that's the mother study. So what next?
So I go to PubMed, and another good study uh, by Jones et al. uh, from Addiction, 2012, November issue, Buprenorphine Treatment of Opioid-Dependent Pregnant Women, a Comprehensive Review. I found the article in in its entirety. Uh, PubMed, you got to sometimes pay for stuff, but I found it on the Internet, and... um, there was also uh, a review article on methadone and buprenorphine for the management of opioid dependence. And, you know, they've, they found a lot of advantages for um, uh, buprenorphine. So the, the conclusions were, and I'm pretty much paraphrasing this, uh, buprenorphine is pretty much a better choice producing a less severe neonatal abstinence syndrome than methadone. Both methadone and buprenorphine are important parts of a complete comprehensive treatment uh, approach for opioid-dependent pregnant women. That's a conclusion. And they have a number of references. Uh, So when you look at comprehensive reviews, they look at a lot of articles, and that's why I threw this up, is it's – uh, what I do sometimes in, in pain research is uh, I look for good, valid review articles that are well-constructed and have a good methodology. You know, the, a lot of the junk you see on the Internet is, I think, it therefore it is, just like I said. You know, um, somebody has a theory or a hypothesis, and they uh, are biased, and they believe it so much in what they're thinking that, of course, they're going to get the result they want and they have very poor methodology, those are throwaway articles, just throwaway. And you have to kind of know how to read these things. And that's why I get real nervous uh, about patients that collect most of their information off the Internet because a lot of it's junk. And you have to know how to go look at things. So a good place to start is go to PubMed, and you can do that uh, uh, through ncbi.nlm.nih.gov and you can search it there and that's a pretty good place but it, it's it's just going to be uh, a few sentences uh, it's sometimes going to be very complicated sometimes you have to buy things but every once in a while you can find the whole article and another good place of course is pain physician and you go through the asipp.org website those are all free articles uh, Dr. Manchikati and the organization makes that uh, information free to the world, and that's why it's the leading uh, pain journal. So you you can find a lot of information about pain there. But this is so specialized, you know, we have to take it very careful, and that's why I spent some time on the mother study. That's a good starting point, and I'll talk a little bit more about the pregnant female in uh, opioid uh, treatment with buprenorphine. And I'll be uh, kind of mentioning it um, with somewhat of an anecdotal side as we as we progress through our our podcast in the future. I've had some unbelievably positive experiences with buprenorphine. I don't know how it happened. Probably through a registry, they find me and they come in and we do a, a pregnancy test. And absolutely, there you are. Uh, they're pregnant, and uh, so. <laughs> What are you going to do? Well, you put them on buprenorphine, and it appears to be very safe, and they have a unremarkable pregnancy. They look better. They get their family to unit together. Uh, they get a lot of counseling and support, and it is um, 
It is just one of the best feelings when you see them come in your office and they're holding their infant and their life back on track and they're ready to continue treatment. It is an incredibly gratifying experience as a physician and staff. The staff was in tears the last one we had. Um, Beautiful baby, beautiful baby. So we're going to move on on this one, but take-home message here is, first of all, good prenatal care. Got to get the prenatal care and talk it over with your OBGYN and get that done. If it has to be with the health department, go get it done. If they're in active withdrawal, get them to the ER. They need to get out of withdrawal, a chance of losing the infant or the fetus. Uh, Number three, make sure that there is a support system. You can't just give somebody a pill or you can't just give somebody a judgmental uh, comment or two and expect them to be successful. No, you need motivational interviewing and somebody that knows what they're doing. Get them to an addictionologist and really try to find somebody or somebody that's been through the buprenorphine waiver program. They'll know what to do. And there's plenty of mental health services available through the health department. Uh, I would imagine in uh, most places of this uh, listening audience. Uh, and please, it's not a moral failure. This is not the time to be judgmental and uh, look down your nose at somebody. They need help. And uh, this is an extraordinarily vulnerable time. You don't want them to lose the uh, fact that the light at the end of the tunnel is a very beautiful thing when they have that child. Um, and so, anyway, right, we're going to move on to the next uh, point here. All right, next question is, uh, tell me something new. Uh, what's out there in the pain world? Well, okay, this is something kind of neat. Um, Dr. Ramson Ben-Yaman, you've heard him on the podcast, and other uh, researchers have taken this really cool procedure called, uh, it's a mild, M-I-L-D, procedure for spinal stenosis. That's minimally invasive lumbar decompression and studied it mostly at uh, Medicare's request because to get something covered by Medicare and ultimately most of the payers, you have to have data and you got to show that uh, there's improvement in uh, very important markers that uh, can be reproduced and it's published in the peer review literature and they've done it. And so this mild procedure is going to be a game changer. Uh, unlike the IDET procedure of a number of years ago, it's just, uh, we'll talk about that later. It's going down a rabbit hole. But the mild procedure makes sense. It takes a special device and it decompresses areas that are pushing on uh, nervous tissue or giving less room for blood to flow freely, henceforth, that uh, that claudication that people get, that uh, neurogenic claudication that you can walk a little bit when you get spinal stenosis and then you got to stop. Or you got to lean over on the shopping cart and then you got to stop. Or it feels much better going up the stairs and going down because you're unloading your back. This mild procedure. Uh, takes away certain tissues in the spine, uh, minimally invasive. In other words, uh, trans uh, well through the skin, and by uh, using a caudal approach like an epidural, it goes in there, and uh, you get up and you you go home, and you're up and moving, as opposed to having a 
major surgical procedure where you're unroofed. You're, you get an incision in your back, and then they take some bone away to make room, and the recovery time is pretty, pretty lengthy, and it's got a lot more associated risk. But the milder procedure is coming. It's really neat. I'll have uh, Ramson on talking about that. He's, he's touched on that a little bit. Another kind of cool thing that's uh, coming up is this fuse. It's a percutaneous fusion of the sacroiliac joint. As you've heard us talk about, when you have added biomechanical stress above and below surgical fixation sites, so you've got hardware in there, or else if you just have a lax SI joint for whatever reason, um, this fuse can be minimally invasive. It's minimally invasive. It's, be, it's, tranqu- it's, it's through the skin without making a major incision, uh, and it fuses the uh, SI joint. Um, and uh, once again, you're up and, you're up and running. You don't have to have this major procedure. Does it really work well? It appears it does. It's got some supportive literature. So that's really good. And I think that's going to be a pretty common procedure. It requires a diagnostic block because that helps us understand if your SI joint is a true and relevant pain generator. But that's not a problem. You get a little pain journal, and you write down how much it helps, and we compare the length of the local anesthetic, or the expected length anyway, uh, through a differential block, um, a short-acting, long-acting. The patient goes through maneuvers of life, and uh, if it helps, there's not a lot of downside to this fuse that I can see. So that's coming. All right. Why does gabapentin help my neuropathy? Good question. Gabapentinoid drugs, uh, that would be the pregabalin or Lyrica. That would be um, the short and long-acting form of uh, gabapentin, and the immediate release is generic. And then there's uh, branded by Horizons and by Depomed, uh, Graylease, uh, and uh, those are pharmacokinetically longer-acting drugs with advantages to, to all. Um, and they've been used for quite a long time. I've talked about gabapentin. Gabapentin came around kind of like uh, oddly. <laughs> I think it was 94. There was a letter to the editor in one of the journals about the uh, uh, use of gabapentin to help with neuropathic pain, that kind of tingly, electric-like pain that you get in your extremities from diabetes, stocking glove. It's a really resistant uh, problem. And uh, Katie barred the door. There it went because we had really crappy drugs before uh, gabapentin. It was called Neurontin. Then, and that was a branded name. I think it was developed in Germany many years ago. and It was in, developed as an anticonvulsive or seizure drug. And it just never really took off. It was supposed to be like GABA or GABA aminobutyric acid uh, because we know that helped. And there are so many GABA drugs out there. And they go by subunits, GABA, GABA uh, A, GABA B, and GABA B is associated with benzodiazepines. GABA A is with baclofen, uh, which is a muscle relaxer. But the point is this. <laughs> they thought they had this drug that would really help seizures and had few side effects. Side effects, you say? Yes, because these crappy drugs, the diabetes, Dilantin and Integritol had a lot of side effects. Dilantin, they got uh, gingival hypertrophy, or gums were just got messy and sometimes requiring surgery. Integritol actually suppressed the bone marrow, and that's not good if you want you want uh, cells <laughs> to run around in your blood. And so those drugs you had to monitor with blood. Uh, you had to really watch for side effects. And here's gabapentin. It's kind of like the the uh, angels in the uh, have arrived and so that one article opened the door 
Park Davis had that drug then. And so we started using it, and I was an early adopter, and I used a lot of it. And it was a good drug. It still is a good drug. It helps with neuropathy, but it also helped with a lot of other things. Unfortunately, Park Davis got in a little bit of trouble because they used it off-label and promoted it off-label. So, well, whatever. That's, that's not important to this, okay? This drug was designed as an ag- analog of GABA, okay? It's a little bit of a variation of it. And we didn't really know how it works. Now we know that the gabapentinoids, they bind to the alpha-2, sigma-1, and alpha-2, sigma-2 um, subunits of calcium channels. And calcium channels let a lot of things happen uh, it, from local anesthetics to a number of drugs. But they, they let things happen. And it turns out um, there's the first one, the alpha-2, sigma-1, uh, is – it's it's associated with neuropathy, and it was first seen in, in a, d- a number of different models that were developed through animals. So the validity of that you have to kind of question, but in reality, it helped, and it had very few side effects. You didn't have to get blood work. People slept a little better, and we eventually learned that it enhanced stage four sleep, so you slept better. It decreased the amount of opioids that were necessary because it. Uh, was a, uh, I think it had effect on the dorsal horn and the spinal cord, where it actually made the opioid work better, so it was opioid sparing. And it, it had a lot of uh, implications that it had a, a number of uses. It, it, it could help fibromyalgia-like pain. I remember I was always talk about pain inside out. So this drug was working on the central nervous system in a unique way. And then it was pushed for... Um, some depressive disorders and psychiatric disorders and that sort of thing. So that's kind of where it got in trouble. And it was pushed in children and uh, some other issues. But without getting too far into this sort of thing, the gabapentinoids are a, a staple in uh, pain management. And the um, good news is there's another new one coming out. And that's that's promising. These drugs may uh, have an effect at uh, the AMPA and NMDA receptor, that's N-methyl-D-aspartate receptor, and it's our, our ketamine-relevant receptor. And they work, uh, they work in the uh, spinal cord and certain areas, and they work at the uh, uh, voltage-gated uh, uh, channels uh, that allow neuropathy to develop where it's going. So it probably works at the cellular level, and it's uh, being worked out. It's still it's very unclear exactly um, what gabapentin specifically does. But as more drugs are coming out, more uh, work is being done on studying them. And so we're going to have a lot more information about that probably within the next five years. And we'll, we'll have drugs being able to be developed by the fact that these pathways that cause uh, the nerve-type injury associated with neuropathy can have spe- specific drugs engineered to change their characteristics. And we're using a lot of rat models right now. And, and why do we use rats? Because they, uh, they are very similar to uh, humans in the primitive brain and other reasons, but they are readily available, and you can utilize them um, to a, a greater disease due to nu- or a greater um, degree due to number.
So this process of central sensitization that I've talked about, where the central nervous system becomes excitable inside out as opposed to outside in, is where um, gabapentin seems to be most valuable. Uh, that's uh, where the gabapentin uh, or gabapentinoid analgesia uh, is probably going to find evidence in humans. They can be limited by some of the side effects, and that's dizziness, and that's uh, uh, kind of a somnolence that people get a little sleepy on them. They tend to get used to them pretty quickly, but we don't necessarily see a lot of the liver problems. We don't see the blood dysgrasias. We don't see uh, gingival hypertrophy. We, we see an effect on analgesic and opioid sparing, and that's why they're so important. So, all right, now, what's labeled? Well, pregabalin is labeled for a number of things, and one of the things it's labeled for is fibromyalgia. And as I believe, and others believe, fibromyalgia is a central nervous system disorder that has a peripheral manifestation. Long thought, a muscular problem, and I can go into, back into the literature. I remember in the 90s, I was like, oh, my God, this has nothing to do with muscles. But they were, people were doing muscle biopsies, talking about muscle conditioning, deep t- tissue mas- uh, massage, and the like. And you've heard me say it before. You know, it's deep tissue massage and that sort of thing on these trigger points, uh, even injecting them and that sort of thing. Are we irritating a peripheral manifestation of a central nervous system problem? In other words, throwing gasoline on the fire, probably. And that's why a lot of people with fibromyalgia say, you know, I felt great after that massage, and the next day I could barely move. And I felt great um, with the trigger points, but oh my God, did I have a flare. And another problem is they tend to have altered sleep, and they tend to have trouble with memory, that fibro fog. Well, that's a central nervous system problem. We do know that uh, fibromyalgia does not have good stage 4 adoption. They tend to stay in alpha-2 intrusion in the sleep studies. In other words, they don't get to deep sleep. You don't get to deep sleep, it interferes with memory, interferes with learning. And it all goes back to brain-derived neurotrophic factor that we talked about that uh, has to do a little bit with synaptogenesis and the brain health. And folks with fibromyalgia and other disease states like diabetes and Alzheimer's and the like, they actually have brain mass shrinkage because they don't have that rich uh, uh, neuronal crosstalk, or that crosstalk's not the right name, it's a dendritic formation that uh, is so important for the uh, sick neuron to become healthy. And what we notice is people that are sick that get exercise and they maintain a good, uh, healthy lifestyle is they uh, develop more dendritic formation, hence more brain mass. Uh, This has been demonstrated in PET scanners. And hence uh, (laughs) more brain-drive neurotrophic factor that lifts all ships and better sleep and they're clearer thinking and they do better. So get your exercise and think Gabapentinoid over opioids. It's not always an opioid problem. And we know that neuropathies are resistant to opioids. Gabapentins help us there. And the gabapentinoids. We know that there's a rational explanation for a lot of the responses, but we're still learning. So I think we've covered a lot there. And let's go to the next question. All right, next one is... uh, what is a big deal about NSAIDs? Well, that's non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. Well, they are a big deal. They're a drug, and every drug has side effects. They aren't natural in you, and anything 
that is in you, including alcohol, aspirin, whatever, that is unnatural, uh, can be problematic, especially in uh, overuse syndromes. And, and you see that pretty commonly with NSAIDs. You see it with acetaminophen or Tylenol. You see, you see they're readily available. And I don't know if it was a great idea that we had so many NSAIDs just become available over the counter because people think they're just benign. At times, I thought it would be better if they were... Uh, regulated like Sudafed. You can still get them, but it's just not as easy. All right, this is a little bit of information about NSAIDs. And and you can go to paininformation.com. I am trying to uh, make that a visual page. That's why I'm not just populating it with blog stuff regularly. You know, you can get that anywhere. But I'm going to be doing um, a lot of webinars and that sort of thing. And I'm learning webinar equipment. So they aren't great yet, but I'm giving you my uh, NSAID lecture on there right now, and I'm I'm adding to a little bit at a time. But in general, uh, they these are uh, they're effective for pain and inflammation, but they don't make inflammation go away. They're a good initial agents according to the World Health Organization, but they have some problems. They may decrease uh, inflammation. You don't really get tolerant to them. You don't really get dependent. Although I do believe some people get dependent on them. And they uh, can sometimes just kind of go just so far and stop. That's called a stealing effect. But this is the deal. They have renal problems. They have hepatic problems. And you have to be careful with them and use caution in certain drugs like Coumadin. And antacids and H2 blockers... Uh, some of these uh, drugs you get over the counter, uh, Tagamet and the like, uh, they they are not protective. Okay, they don't necessarily protect the, the GI. And that's a that's a whole another talk. But why why do I have to worry about these? Well, because of the cardiovascular risk. Yeah, you can have NSAID problems you, uh, with uh, your liver, kidneys, and the like. And I mean that's that's an issue. But I want to tell you a little bit of something that, that may be a little bit more important. And the reason being is it has a, a, a real important health risk. Okay, so we're interested in risk management. And what uh, I can tell you about risk management is that we know that there's a cardiovascular effect from these drugs, and we know that it is a real effect. So this is an article by Singh, S-I-N-G-H, Risk of Serious Upper GI and Cardiovascular Thromboembolic Complications with Meloxicam. Now, Meloxicam is still over the counter. Not over the counter. It's prescription, I believe, yeah. Um, But it's similar to other NSAIDs. It's still there. But what happened to Vioxx or uh, Rifocoxib? It's gone. So the Singh study said you had a four-fold increase in cardiovascular risk for patients on Movic or Meloxicam. Well, Graham went back and looked, and this is called a retrospective study, and looked at data from California's Medicaid program. It has 15,000 heart attack patients. It had a greater incidence of heart attack risk than Vioxx, 37 to 32%. Uh, Celecoxib or Celebrex is way low. When we lost Vioxx, so what happened? Well, a couple of things. All right, so in 2004, the NIH halted an Alzheimer's prevention trial. It looked like NSAIDs were uh, important with Alzheimer's when they had about a 50% more heart attacks and strokes 
uh, with a lever, naproxen, than not. So that's the first evidence suggesting this risk. So they say it's not recommended you take it more than 10 days. All right. What's happening here? Well, it has to do with thrombotic events. There's the pro-thrombotic and the anti-thrombotic effects. So COX-1 drugs, the non-selective drugs, they block thromboxane A2. That's pro-thrombotic. So A2 is pro-thrombotic. COX-1 blocked that. Whereas prostaglandin I2 is anti-thrombotic. Okay, that uh, does not produce uh, promote uh, thrombosis. So what happens is this is the hypothesis. You have uh, this effect of the drug, okay, COX two or rifecoxib in this case, that created imbalance, developing a prothrombotic uh, state, and then you had a thrombotic event or cardiovascular event. So if COX two antithrombotic antithrombotic PGI2 is blocked, that's the part that keeps the blood um, from clotting, then the other is unopposed. That's the prothrombotic. So there you go. All right. Rifecoxib is 900 times more COX-2 selective than uh, celecoxib, and it also has a longer half-life. But now, Mobic is not a, a classic COX-2 drug. It's uh, got a little bit of mixture of both, so it's still up there. So why was rifecoxib such a, a bad risk? Well, if it's 900 times more potent than celecoxib, doesn't it make sense that it would be um, potentially more prothrombotic or develop blood clots? Now, interestingly, one of my big GI bleeds when I was in my training was this drug uh, called Felding. And it has a really long half-life, like once-a-day type thing. And it just hung out, hung out, hung out. And there they went. But um, I, I think it's just almost historical. So we're always looking for safer drugs. However, it does not appear that COX-1 has any safety over COX-2 cyclooxygenase. Learn more about that at paininformation.com as I uh, push through the uh, uh, NSAIDs from my lecture. And that will include salicylates uh, and other drugs. So, all right, I think that's probably about enough for you today. I'll have some more questions. And this is the, this is the, the great one. I went to the ER uh, for... Uh, kind of like malaise and feeling bad and that sort of thing. And the doctor said I was an addict. I went off on that one. So I'll tell you a little bit more about that one in an upcoming episode. So anyway, um, if you'd leave a review, I'd appreciate it. And thanks for coming.